Hey there and welcome to the Duncan Pentecostal Church podcast streaming from Vancouver Island here in Canada and however you have found our podcast we're so glad you're here before we jump into today's message just a couple things want to let you know if you go to our website www.duncanchurch.com you're going to find a couple easy ways where you can connect with us we have an online connect card you can fill out maybe let us know where you're listening from and check off the option to receive our what's happening email we send this out once a week it's a great way to stay connected with everything that's going on here at the church and even online. Apart from that, there is a give button. So if you're feeling led, you can do that right online through our website. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube. We are so glad you're tuning in and we are believing that God's going to do something special in you through today's message. Enjoy. How many of you enjoy controversy? There's a couple of you that are honest. Yeah, you like kind of, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of fun to kind of get into some of those controversial kind of things. This morning, we are going to be looking at a passage of Scripture that is referred to as the most controversial in the New Testament. In fact, um, as I was studying this week, every commentator that I looked and opened up my, my commentaries to, they all agreed on this fact that this is probably the most difficult and controversial passages in the New Testament. Now, here's the thing. They almost all disagreed on what the passage was saying, <laughs> uh, which means a lot of fun for me. Uh, in fact, uh, some of you maybe have heard of the great Bible expositor G. Campbell Morgan, whose, whose commentaries are often known just to be incredible kind of gold mines, a wealth of knowledge there. He skips this chapter. <laughs> he doesn't even write about this chapter. Uh, just skips it all together. And um, there's actually a Greek word for that. It's Chicken. But we're not chicken, right? We're not chicken as a church. We're going to look at the most difficult passage in the New Testament. So I'd like to ask Ross to come up at this time, and I'm going to invite him to teach us this morning. I don't know if he's not moving. Dave? He's chicken. Yeah. Um, we're going to look at it, and I'm lucky enough to get to, fortunate enough, I should say, to get to teach it to us this morning. And so I want to look at this. You might be like, what's so controversial about this? Well, why don't you open up your Bibles this morning to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4. If you're wondering where Hebrews is, first of all, you need a Bible. There are lots of Bibles spread out in the sanctuary in the chair in front of you in the seat back. If you need a Bible, I see a red one right here on the front pew, front seats, I guess, not a pew. If you need a Bible, um, go to the book of Revelation, the very back, and then just start going backwards. You'll hit hit Jude and then 1st, 2nd, third John, and then first, second Peter, and then you'll hit James, and then you'll get to the book of Hebrews. And so turn to Hebrews chapter four, chapter four, and um, we're going to read the passage, and then we're going to take a moment and pray. We may take more than a moment and pray. We may take a lot of a moment and pray, Um, and then we will look at it and study it together this morning. So Hebrews, sorry, did I say chapter four? I meant chapter six, beginning in verse four. That would have been nice if we were in chapter four. But a lot easier. I remember actually a number of years ago, quite a number of years ago, when we were in the book of Genesis, um, our family was going on a holiday to, um, to Ottawa to visit my brother and sister-in-law that lived there at the time. And the Sunday that we were leaving, I had to, I had to preach and then we were leaving. And that Sunday I preached um, from Genesis, Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it was kind of like all about homosexuality. And I was like, okay, goodbye. <laughs> and kind of got to run off. Um, so it's kind of working out again where I, I'm around this week for a little bit and then off to the sabbatical. But anyway, Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those... Did I say chapter 4 again? 
Oh, okay, I did. Okay, I'm all screwed up. Chapter 6, verse 4. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful, for the, useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, this morning we, um, we invite you to teach us and lead us I thank you for the help of commentators and for people that have studied this and understand the Greek and can help us through these kinds of things. Um, Lord, I thank you for the inspiration they've given us, but more than anything, we want you to be the one teaching us this morning. Lord, we all have our biases. I'll be honest, I have my bias. I have my theological viewpoints. Lord, we want your word to speak for itself this morning, and we want you to be the one that leads us and guides us. And so help us to understand. Help us to take to heart what this passage is speaking. And Lord, may we leave this place challenged and encouraged as we grow in you. We love you and we thank you. Amen. Amen. So I don't know if you picked up on some of the controversy, um, but there is some controversy in there. And, uh, and so the first thing that we're going to look at this morning in the text is the impossible. Okay? Beginning in verse 4. For it is impossible... In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, if you don't read that passage and go, oh, there's some difficult stuff in there, um, you need to read it again. <laughs> I, I remember, in fact, the first time I read this passage, when I went to Bible school, I had never read the whole Bible in its entirety, and so I was reading through it during Bible school. And I remember coming to this passage, and I remember reading that. I, don't have, I gave that Bible away, but I remember in that Bible being like, what? And I read it again, and I was like, I actually wrote in the margin, prove it wrong, which isn't really good. You don't want to do that with the Word of God, I mean, of course. But, but that's how I felt. Why? Because I was very much concerned with what this passage said. Why? Because I had loved ones in my life. I had a brother that definitely had tasted of God, had experienced God, and who was at that time no longer walking with the Lord. I had good friends, and one, one friend in particular that I'd grown up with my whole life that, that had known the Lord. I remember being at camp with both my brother and this good friend and experiencing God in incredible ways. And both of them were no longer walking with Jesus. And I remember being like, what? How, how can this be? And so I wrote this in my margin, prove it wrong, because they had fallen away, and, and I so desperately wanted them to come back to the Lord. So, so the controversy is this. Who exactly is this talking about? Who is this that it's referencing? And this is where the commentators all disagree. They basically give four different options. I, and I'm going to give everyone all of the options this morning. 
The first option is this, is that these are genuine believers, followers of Christ that fall away. Verse 4 and 5, it, it seems to describe someone, if you read that, that is a follower of Christ. It says that they've been enlightened. In other words, the light of salvation has come upon them. They've gone from darkness to light. That's the description of this person. We're also told that they have tasted the heavenly gift. What's the heavenly gift? I would think the heavenly gift, of course, is Jesus and the salvation that he brings. They've tasted of that. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. They've had a spiritual rebirth. They've experienced the regeneration of God's Spirit in their life, awakening them. They've tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. In other words, they've experienced God's promises and the eternal realities that come with salvation. Does, does that description, does that not sound like a genuine follower of Christ, if we're honest? I'd be like, yeah, let's hire that person, <laughs> right? But that's what that sounds like to me. The, the problem here, the controversy here is that if it is a genuine follower of Christ, it means, it means that you can fall away. It means, people would say, you can lose your salvation. Is that possible? I mean, isn't our salvation based solely on what Christ did for us? Don't I preach that Sunday and Sunday, again and again? That we've been saved by grace through faith alone? Well, the second option is that they are a confessor, but they're not truly converted. That's who falls away. Someone that confesses Christ, but they're not truly converted. Verse 4 and 5, they would say, describe someone more like Judas, which I kind of go, well, do we know for sure that Judas never actually knew the Lord in that kind of way? Do you know what I mean? I, I don't know. <laughs> but they would describe more like Jesus. They walked with Jesus. In other words, they experienced the true light of the gospel, enlightened in that kind of way. They, I mean, the, the light of the gospel is Jesus. And, and, and for, in Judas's instance, he actually walked with Jesus, experienced the light of the gospel. They, they tasted the heavenly gift and the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. But here's what they would say. They only tasted. It's like they had it in their mouth, but they never swallowed. They never consumed. They tasted it and then spat it out. So that would be one description, kind of, like, kind of like Bill Clinton, right? He didn't inhale, he only smoked it. They shared in the Holy Spirit. Now this, comes, this becomes a little bit more difficult because the Greek's very specific about the sharing in the Holy Spirit here is, speaks more about partaking, actually being a part with the Holy Spirit. But what they would say is that it was kind of more so that they only flirted with the Holy Spirit. They never married. That's how they would explain that. It's absolutely possible that this explanation, there's very good arguments for this explanation as well. But here's the interesting thing, is that even the strictest Calvinist, if you might be going Calvinist, what? Who's Calvin? Um, some of you, who, is, who here was raised in the Christian Reformed Church? Anybody here raised in the Christian Reformed Church? So you would know exactly who, who's JC? We, if I ask who's JC here, people say, Jesus Christ. You go to CRC, they'd say John Calvin right? That's, that's generally what, honestly, like what, like uh, John Calvin, Calvinistic teaching. And Calvinist, Calvin, I mean, I'm not going to get into the whole teaching this morning, but the, even the strictest Calvinists, Calvinists would believe in eternal security, the election, the predestination of the saints. Once saved, always saved. That's kind of a, a short little summary of, of Calvinist teaching. Even some of the strictest commentators that I, I've got a number of commentators that are from a Calvinistic background, they also struggle with that a little bit. And they're like, I don't know, this seems to describe a true Christian. It speaks about falling away. So they'd say, well, well it, how can you fall away if you were never there? If you never had something with God, like you had nothing with God, how can you fall away from nothing, they would say. So, so some totally say, no, this is, this is the person that's describing. Others would say, I, I want that to be the person they're describing, but I have a hard time with how it's worded. The third option is this, is that it's speaking of a loss of rewards 
but the person is still saved. So you, you see, after this, and you might remember when we read it, the passage at the start of the service here, um, verses 7 and 8 actually spoke about a life being near to being cursed. And it, it spoke about uh, the thorns and the thistles that that life produces. Do you, remember, do you recall that in verse 7 and 8? We'll get to it later. But, but it speaks about how that life is near to being cursed. The thorns and the thistles are to be burned, be done away with. But the life, they would say, is saved. It's kind of like how Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 3.15. That passage where he talks about some will make it to eternity, but with like the smell of smoke on them, just barely passing through the flames. So that's what they'd say. It's like they've lost their rewards to be burned up, but they haven't lost their salvation. And it's definitely possible. It's possible. My only problem with this is that verse 6 seems so strong of a warning. It's just so strong. If you strip it down, it reads like this. Verse 4 begins, For it is impossible, and then it describes someone who's experienced God. It's impossible to experience God and then verse 6, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. So the struggle with this, is this talking about rewards or is this talking about repentance? That's what, that's what the struggle is there. The fourth option that commentaries give is that it's a hypothetical situation that isn't actually possible. So they say this, it can't actually happen to fall away from God, but if it could, it would be impossible to be brought back to repentance. That's a little bit of a tough one. I mean, why on earth would you give the most dangerous and scary example to encourage discouraged Christians? Do you know what I'm saying? Does that, does that incite inside you, oh, yes, I want to live for Jesus more? It just can never happen. But if it did happen, you would not be able to come back, to, right? It just, that doesn't instill courage into me. That instills fear. So the question is, what one is it? Those are the four main options that we have. And do you want to know the answer? No one wants to know the answer? If you don't want to know the answer, I won't tell you. Okay, okay, the answer is I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. I don't think it's number three, talking about rewards. I don't think it's number four, a hypothetical situation. I think most definitely it's one or two. It's a genuine follower of Christ. Or someone that, that just professed Jesus but didn't actually know him, never really gave their life over to Christ. And I tried so hard to study this week. I began studying on Sunday for hours, and then all day Monday, I was like, I gotta figure this out. I was scared to preach this passage, I'll be honest. I was scared, and I tried so hard. And this is the conclusion that I came to. This is the answer I resolved at. Is that the bottom line is that this is describing the same person. A person that is not trusting in Christ for their salvation. It, can we agree on that? It's a person that is not looking to Jesus, trusting in the finished work of Christ on the cross. They've fallen away. They've fallen away. Now, you might say, but, but, but this is really important because what about eternal security? Can we lose our salvation? And I want to say this. Scripture is so absolutely clear, absolutely clear about our security in Christ. I would agree. This is Calvinistic teaching, and I agree with it, that we have eternal security. I absolutely believe it. Again and again, we are reassured in scriptures that our salvation is by grace through faith alone. And not only are we saved by grace through faith alone, we're also kept by grace through faith alone. Okay, I absolutely believe that. In fact, John 10, verse 27 to 28, Jesus said this. He said, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. I mean, there's so many scriptures like this. We are secure in the hand of Christ. You need to rest 
in that fact. In fact, that's what, just a couple weeks back, we were in chapter 4 that was speaking all about the rest that comes in Christ. He doesn't want you to be anxious or worried. He wants you to be able to rest in his completed work of salvation that is only found in him. I do not believe you can lose your salvation. It's not like, it's not like a, a ticket is being given out to heaven. Tickets to heaven! Tickets to heaven! Who wants their ticket? And we're like, oh, I do, I do, I do, I do, give me, I want a ticket. Right, we get a ticket, and then we stick it in our pocket, and then we go home, and, uh-oh, I washed my jeans. <laughs> my ticket! I lost my ticket! Right, that, that's not, that's sometimes how we, th- that's, that's not, that's, that's not something that can happen. I believe that Christ holds your hand, right? There's times where I want to pull my hand out of his, and he just grips a little harder. And I believe he also holds my ticket, if you want to put it that way. I do not believe that you can lose your salvation. But I do believe that you can leave your salvation. I do believe that. See, no one can snatch you out of Jesus' hand, but I believe that you can walk out of his hand. We've been saved by grace through faith, but if you don't continue in that faith, I believe it can atrophy and it can die. So you might be asking, well, Peter, well, then are you an Arminianist? Arminianist focuses more on the choice that we have, that we have, that man has a volition, a will that they need to exercise as well. And Arminius tend to put a heavy emphasis on that the salvation's out there and it's just up to us to choose. So Peter, are you an Arminianist or are you a Calvinist? And an Arminianist would say they can lose their salvation. A Calvinist would say, nope, you are elect, you are chosen by God. If you're saved, once saved, always saved, you can't lose your salvation. I would say this, I'm a Calvinianist. <laughs> because here's the reality, Scripture teaches the sovereignty of God. Scripture absolutely teaches the keeping power of God. But it also teaches the free will of humanity. It does. It it, it teaches that we do have a volition and a right to choose, and and I think we need to weave them both together. I don't know that it's an either-or type situation. I don't think we need to divide them because the Word of God teaches both of them, if we're honest. And if you throw your systematic theology and all the Bible school teaching that you've had, you will see it in the Word of God. This is what I've realized more and more as I teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter. I've got to teach sometimes Calvinism, and sometimes I've got to teach Arminianism, because it's in the Word of God. I really like what Mark Driscoll said, who is a Calvinist. He said this, I preach like an Arminianist, but I sleep like a Calvinist. (laughs) In other words, he preaches, you need to choose Jesus today, because you do. No Calvinist teacher would not say that. You need to make a choice to follow Jesus. You need to choose to surrender your life to Christ. He would say that. You need to choose Jesus. But then he'd say, but I sleep knowing that Jesus has chosen me. I'm at peace. He's got a grip on me. You know, I think it's always obviously important that we also need to read this this passage in the context that it's written in. Remember that this is written to discouraged Hebrew Christians. Hebrew Christians that were being persecuted and pressured to leave Jesus and go back to the temple, go back to the law, to the Mosaic law, go go back to temple sacrifices to return there. In fact, if you remember um, the other week when we were in this passage, that was last week, was it not? Yeah, I think it was. Um, There was a stern spanking. Don't go backwards, but move forwards in Jesus. There was a stern spanking. Grow up in Christ. Don't go backwards. So in the context right? If they return to temple worship, they return to sacrifices, if they return to the Mosaic law for their salvation, would they be saved? No. 
If we trust in anything but the blood of Christ, the completed work of Christ on the cross, there is no salvation. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. None. And so in the context of this passage, we need to hear this warning that outside of Christ, there is no salvation. He is the only way to the Father. And sometimes we go, man, that's a narrow way. I would rather have Jesus, and you know, I'm going to cover all the bases. I'm going to go for some Buddha, and I'm going to go for some some Muhammad and some, you know, like, and I want to cover all the bases. Outside of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. And then, yes, it's narrow, but you know what? I'm thankful that there's a way, period. I'm thankful that there is a way of salvation. However, here's the tricky part. Because verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6, they warned of, remember, not going backwards, but grow up in Christ, continue in Christ. Then we read verse 4. So don't go backwards, he says. Why? Because look at verse 4. For or because... It is impossible if they experience Christ and then fall away to be restored again to repentance. This is also a really tough part of the passage. Yeah, we're totally unsure if verse 4 to 5 really describes a genuine believer or someone that's just a confessor. Can they fall away? That's the problem. This is, this is the problem is because it actually says it's impossible for some to be brought to repentance. That's really, really scary. It's impossible for some to be brought to repentance, to be restored to repentance. I, I think this is speaking of those that, that fully leave Christ, that walk out of his hand, that, that Scripture describes as an apostate, somebody that would reject Christ in their life and actually even preach against Christ. I, I think that's what this is talking about. But, but really, I think it's, it's, it's those that would go to anything but Christ for their salvation, for righteousness, and so whether that be because, remember, verses 1 to 3 warned them, don't go backwards, don't go back to that old way of life, the Mosaic law, the temple. Move forward in Jesus. And then he gives a stern, stern warning. I think he's saying this, don't even go back. If we renounce Jesus as God's sole provision for sin, there is no hope. And we can't have it both ways, whether it be the temple and the Mosaic law or whether it even be our good works. We need to understand that. We think we're, we're, we're free of this. We're not Jewish and we don't have the temple temptation. But the reality is this, is that we have the, I do at least, the good works temptation to try to earn my salvation before the Lord, to try to be a good Christian. Right? I sometimes talk to you about how, I'm, you know, Peter, the good little Pharisee, that's how I always kind of thought of myself. And I, I never thought of myself in those terms, but I've realized as I've gotten older, that's how I did think of myself. I was a Pharisee. I had it down. I could, I could say all the right things and do all the right things, but I didn't know Jesus. I had all these friends that, that would do all the wrong things. And I was the designated driver, and I was the guy that, you know, and I realized after hanging out with them for all those years and we'd go skateboarding and do crazy stuff, I didn't know Jesus any more than they did. And in fact, I was just as lost as they were, even though I was depending on my good works. You see, Galatians even tells us that, that it's not... It's not both ways. It's either or. He actually says, Paul actually writes in Galatians that if you go back to works of the law, you're actually committing adultery on Christ. That's what he actually says. You cannot, so for those Hebrews, you cannot trust in the blood of animals. And for us today, we cannot trust in our own blood, sweat, and tears as payment for sin and the blood of Christ at the same time. And you might be here going, well, what if I have? What do I do? Well, you stop. That's what you do. That's what you do. That, that's what repentance is. You just stop. Stop what you're doing. Stop that thinking and come back to Christ. 
And you might be saying, well, but Peter, I just read in this passage that I can't if I've fallen away, if I've gone that direction. I can't. It's impossible. We need to understand that Scripture is absolutely clear. That as long as a wayward soul has breath in their lungs, there's hope. Think about the prodigal son. The prodigal son who was part of the family, then he fell away. Spit in the face of his father. I want you dead. I want the inheritance. I'd rather you be dead. Went off, spent his inheritance, fell away. What happened there with the prodigal son? The father watched and waited and then welcomed him back when he came back with a repentant heart. You know, even Romans chapter 11, verse 23 says, says of the Jews that were cut off from the vine, okay, cut off from Christ, from salvation, it says this, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in, what does it say there? Again. Interesting. Notice they had it, they lost it, then they got it back again. It's possible. You know, in my morning times, one of the books that I've been reading through is the book of Jeremiah. Continually points out the idolatry uh, and the rejection of God on the part of the Israelites. You can't get any worse, spit any worse in the face of God than to go and just worship idols and say, God, don't want you. I'm choosing this God now. But the, the resounding tone that keeps coming out is God continues to offer them repentance. Come back. Turn from your ways. Come back. Come back. He continues to offer this. And, and I think I think the warning in this passage is so stern because of the, the danger that there is in leaving Christ, of not walking with Christ. When do you come to him then? When do you come back? Well, I'll wait till my deathbed. Are you going to have that opportunity? Are you Are going to have that moment? I say, don't take the chance. You keep denying Christ, eventually the heart becomes hard towards the Holy Spirit. But I also want to read this in the context. It is impossible you know what I'm thankful is that we serve a God of the impossible. Do we not? In fact, even when it comes to salvation, he is the God of the impossible, is he not? He is. And so we need to read it in the context of all of Scripture as well. Think about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus. He came to Christ and, and, and he, he won. He says, what more must I do? And he says, well, sell your possessions, give it all away. And oh, he left away sad, dejected. I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't follow Jesus. He wanted to and then, no, I can't do it. I can't give that up. And you know what's interesting is that the disciples, they, they, they go, my goodness, this man, he was a good, moral, law-abiding, rich man. The blessing of God was on his life. And what do they say? If he can't be saved, who can? They're talking, this is the context of salvation. And then what does Jesus say? Matthew 19, 26, he says, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. I'll just say this this morning. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. But I know the context of Scripture and the God that I serve is the God of the impossible. He's the God of the impossible. In fact, repentance, if you think about it, the very fact of repentance is really impossible aside from God in our own lives, is it not? See, we would love to, as an Arminianist, teach, you have the free will to come to God. Just choose him. Come to him today. Now, on the other side, you have the Calvinistic theology that would say, well, unless, which is the, actually the word of God teaches this, unless the word, unless, rather, unless the Holy Spirit draws you and convicts you of your sin, you can't come to the Father. Well, what is it? I thought I had a choice. Well, you do, but I thought I don't have a choice. Well, you don't, but I thought, and we have to try to weave this together. 
And in fact, repentance is in fact even impossible, aside from the Holy Spirit working on my heart and convicting me of my sin and showing me and pointing out to me, Peter, you need to change that in your life. Pastor John Corson, in his commentary, I think he sums up this passage really well. I've actually got it for you this morning. I want to read this, and you can read along with me. You've walked away, sister. You've walked away, brother. It is impossible in your own energy, in your own strength, by your own efforts to renew yourself again to repentance. But guess what? Even now, God is doing a miracle. He's brought you into this understanding. He's made you see the stupidity of what you've been doing. And he has done the impossible. He has brought you back once again. But understand that if it weren't for his miraculous power and matchless mercy, it would be impossible for you to return to him. A glorious truth, yet a sobering one as well. For scripture indicates it is possible to wander away once too often. Like the rich young ruler, there can come a day when you just can't return. The job's too demanding, the movie's too enticing, the guy's too handsome. There can come a day when a person can wander away to the point where their heart becomes hardened. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can leave it. Because God won't force eternal life on anyone. What can separate us from the love of God? Neither height nor depth, nor principalities, nor power, nor things present, nor things to come. No outside force can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 38, 39 teaches us that. Only you can. And that's the warning of this passage. I agree with him. You can disagree with me, that's okay. Truth isn't going to die with me. It might suffer a hard blow, but it won't die with me. Believe me, I'm not even that close to it. I don't get a lot of it, so. But I think that's what this passage is, is getting towards. Just it's a warning. Put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Don't go backwards. Don't go backwards. Continue in Christ and move forwards in Christ. Next, we're going to see this in the passage. It is how to know if we're in danger of falling away. Well, how do I know? Look at verse 7. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to, to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You see, I was talking with Andrea about this this week, and there's this cool little phrase that she's come up with. The, the fruit reveals the root. The fruit reveals the root. What our life produces shows what we're connected to, shows what's in us, right? And here he's talking about the, the rain, in other words, the gospel. That's what it's equating to, that God pours on the land. And who's the land? What's the land? People, us, we are. And he says that God pours his rain, his gospel, his grace upon people, all people, the land. And therefore, what fruit, fruit is produced, or, or lack thereof fruit, <laughs> that the gospel produces, it reveals the kind of heart that I have. Do you see that? The fruit reveals the root. So whether I accept the gospel or whether I reject the gospel, that is no reflection on the gospel. Do you know what it is? It's a reflection on my heart. It's a revelation of what's in me. That's what it is. And so we need to ask ourselves, what is the fruit of my life? What is the crop that my life is producing? And I want every Christian to know that they are secure in their salvation, not to doubt. Believe me, I do not want you to doubt your salvation. But I also think that every Christian needs to check their life to see if there's fruit. In fact, Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. He says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. 
Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. What's the test? The most basic test? Fruit. Fruit. Is there fruit in my life? If I've put my faith in Jesus, there should be fruit in my life. Well, what does that fruit look like? Some grapes. It does not look like grapes. Good try, though. It, lo- it looks like Galatians 5.22. That's right, Steve. Galatians 5.22. That's what the fruit should look like. My life should look like one of love. There should be love for others in my life. Is there love for others in your life? Joy. Is there a joy in my life? Do I have joy about living for Jesus? Peace. Do I have peace in my life where I'm always in turmoil, tormented? Patience. Is there patience in my life? Or do I lose it at the drop of a hat? Kindness. Am I kind towards others? Do people think of me and think, yeah, Peter, he's a kind person. Goodness. Goodness. Is there goodness towards fellow fellow humanity? Faithfulness. Do I have faithfulness towards God, towards my spouse, towards my family? Gentleness? Gentleness. Am I gentle towards others? Is that a fruit of my life? That I am gentle with those that I'm dealing with, even my kids. <laughs> self-control. Is there self-control in my life, or am I out of control? I can't control myself. You see, it's not that we are to be per- perfect. Believe me, I'm not even close. Not even close. And if you're wondering how close you are to perfection, just ask your spouse. If you're not married, ask someone that's really close to you. We are not, we are called to be perfect. I won't say that. I was just going to say we're not called to be perfect, but we are. Jesus actually, we are called to be perfect. That's why we need Jesus, because we can't do it without him. But here's the reality. When his spirit comes in me, there'll be changes. They won't come all at once. In fact, they won't even be finished until he returns to take us home. But there should be some changes. Because the fruit reveals the root. Is there fruit in my life? Or is it just thorns and thistles? Am I rooted in Christ? Am I abiding in Christ? If I am, then there should be some fruit. Salvation, you know, if we want to go back to the ticket illustration. Salvation is so much more than just receiving a ticket to heaven. Tickets to heaven, tickets to heaven. I'll take my ticket, I, I want a ticket. It's so much more than taking that ticket and then just sticking it in our pocket and then living however we want right? That's not the true Christian experience, just going on and living my own life. When God's Spirit comes into our lives as a deposit of salvation, changes happen. They happen. And if you feel you failed the test, if you're a fruit inspector and you're like, there's some fruit that's lacking in my life, you need to just repent. That's what you do. You repent. And you put your faith in Christ. And finally, we're going to wrap up with this. We'll see now how to live in the tension. How do you live in the tension? I'm saved, I'm secure, but what? I can walk away from him? I can, what? What's going on here? How do I live in this tension? Verse 9. Wow, that's good raspberry there, Ryland. <laughs> he broke the tension. That's what you do. You just make raspberry sounds with your dad. This is how you live in the tension. 
aside from that. Verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. The first thing you need to do is this. You need to remember that fruit belongs to salvation, but it doesn't bring salvation. Okay? That's very important. Even here in verse 10, he speaks about work and love for others. That would be called the fruits of salvation. But did you notice what he said first in verse 9? These are things that belong to salvation, not things that bring salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 to 10 tells, it, tells us, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You can't get more clear than that. Salvation is by grace through faith, not by works. It's not to do with you. Then we go on. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, we have not been saved by good works, but we are saved to good works. There's a big difference. So we need to be fruit inspectors, but we need to live knowing that the fruit doesn't save us. Only Jesus saves. And fruit is just simply going to be a byproduct of abiding in Christ. It's going to be a byproduct of salvation. And again, if there's no fruit in my life, then I should ask myself, why is there no fruit? Do I really know Jesus? Have I really repented? Have I really put my faith in him? And if you haven't, do it. Secondly, we live with full assurance of hope. Look at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, why do we have this assurance of, of this hope? Look at verse 12. So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Again, I want to be so absolutely clear here that the resounding word of Scripture is that your salvation is secure. It's not based, we just read the Ephesians 2, it's not based on what you do, it's based on what Christ has done. You should have full assurance, as it says here, how long? How long should you have full insurance? Until the end. Right until the end. You do not need to doubt. You need to have full assurance. Full assurance. You know, Scripture tells us that you are born again. I don't know how you can become unborn. I'm not sure. Scripture says that you've been sealed by His Spirit. A deposit. I don't know how you can be unsealed. Scripture also tells us that you've been bought by the blood of Christ. He's not going to make a return. Way too costly. He won't get it back. He's not going to make a return on you. It also tells us in Philippians 1, 6 that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day, until the day of Christ Jesus. Until, right through till the end. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 5 tells us through your faith, God is protecting, other translations say shielding or guarding you by his power until you receive the salvation. Is God's power not enough? Absolutely it is. God wants you to have full assurance of salvation. I believe he wants you to have eternal security, not eternal insecurity. That's what he wants. I really believe that. And here's the reality. It's because when we know that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, and we have that assurance of salvation, that assurance of hope, you know what's going to happen? We won't be sluggish, like he says here. We won't be lazy. That's what's going to happen. Why? Because grace is a far better motivator than law and works. If you've experienced grace in your life, you realize that. I remember I was so scared to teach a book of Galatians to our church. 
I was like, we're going to have, like, just Christians doing crazy stuff. But you, you, you all of a sudden get a grasp on the grace of God, and it motivates you in a way that, that works can't even come close. I tried so hard for so much of my life to perform for Jesus, but when I realize that he performed for me, it takes off all that pressure, and I just go, oh, I want to serve you. I get to serve you. So we won't be lazy. We won't be sluggish. And not only that, he goes on to say that when we have full assurance of salvation, we'll be able to keep our faith with patience. Because don't forget that, that whenever there's a giving of a promise, there's always a lapse of time, isn't there, between the giving of the promise and the fulfillment of the promise. So it takes faith. We've got to continue to believe that it's going to happen, that he's going to come, that salvation will come. Not only that, but we have to have patience in the interim while we wait. If you want that full assurance of hope, of salvation, I want you to know that the opportunity is here right now. No matter how far you've gone, like Israel, you might have dove headfirst into idolatry. He says, come back. You can still come back. Maybe like the prodigal son, spitting in the face of the father. I want the inheritance. I'm done with you. Yet he still welcomed him back. God still welcomes you back. By the way, I mentioned my brother and my good friend that I'd grown up with that both had walked away from the Lord that I knew had tasted of him. And I didn't understand this passage. You know what? My brother, about three years ago now, you've heard me share about it, radically came back to Christ and loves Jesus with his whole heart. Incredible, incredible. And that friend of mine, same thing, came back to the Lord. I began to pray for those guys and I became discouraged. I gave up, I'll be honest. But they came back. They came back. You can too. Because his offer still stands. And I'll just say this this morning. If you already know Christ, be secure. Have the assurance of the hope of Jesus. And allow that to motivate you once again to give all of your life for him. Let's just close our eyes as we prepare our hearts. Lord, we thank you that you are the God of the impossible. Nothing is too difficult for you. Yes, it's impossible for us, even in our own strength, to come to a place of repentance. We need your Holy Spirit to do that. But I thank you that it's your desire that, that God so loved the world. Peter wrote that he wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. And I pray this morning that there's anybody in this place right now that is not walking with you, that today would be that day, that they would take the offer to be made right with you through the work that Jesus Christ did, and they would receive it and accept it, that they would choose Jesus today. Whether they're joining us online, whether they're here in-house, do the work that only you can do by your Holy Spirit, not by the preaching of Peter, but by the work of your Holy Spirit. Do that work, I pray. I love you all, and I will see you four months. Blessings on you. Thanks for listening to the podcast from Duncan Pentecostal Church, located here in Duncan, British Columbia, on beautiful Vancouver Island. At DPC, we believe in teaching the whole Bible to build whole believers who can impact the whole world. For more information about us, find us online at www.duncanchurch.com or find us on Facebook and YouTube by searching Duncan Pentecostal Church. Have a great day.